love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seats. This has been an exciting day. If you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes, which in a few Bibles, it's found on page 704. 704, uh, actually 703 and 4, we'll be looking at those. Uh, but if the word cloud could come up, I always want to remind folks, you are in a Bible-believing church. We are unafraid and we are unashamed uh, to be able to encourage you to look into the Word of God. This should not just simply be uh, the musings of somebody that's been around for a while. This should not just be something that's convenient, uh, and nor is it just something to be controversial. When you come to church, the goal is not that you would be more educated. The goal is not that you would be able to check the box to say that you're more, more religious. When you come, we want you to meet the Lord. Worship is meeting God. How do we meet God? When I was, in, uh, also, uh, when I was over in Kodiak, they had a special launch site on the far side of Kodiak Island. The roads almost end there. And they, they send up satellites from that place. But you can't get to God from there. Uh, it, you, it, launch sites are not the way to get to God. If you want to come into his presence, uh, you call upon him, he comes. But he bids us to come to him. And as we come, we don't come according to our own imaginations and with our own devices, but we come according to his instruction. It's called the regulative principle. And God regulates how we come. We don't come killing babies. We don't come uh, to have to sacrifice this and that. And even now, we don't come with any blood. We come into his presence because he bids us come just as we are. He bids us to come and hear his spirit. And we know that faith is going to be worked in us because the word of God will not return void. And the word cloud focuses on the Bible. And inside the Bible, you're going to run into Jesus and his good news. That's what the gospel driven is all about. And all the peripheral things about being multi-generation or covenantal or even cherishing of worship, all of that flows from having been with the risen Lord. And so now is our opportunity to look into the Bible, and uh, this is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word as it was given in the originals. And when you look at the word of God, then let us reverently pay attention to it. I want to be able to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and also from chapter 2. So this is God's word. I want to start with the familiar verse or the one that's, that's on our... Um, on our focus on the front of the bulletin and even on the insert, uh, there is a text there from uh, verses 10 and 11. So in chapter 1, look at verse 10 and 11. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us, but there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now, if I start picking up like I did in the reading of the scripture, a lot of times you're going to end up feeling like, what? Um, I mean, I'm sure that you guys would prove that this text is right. Is right. You know, uh, do you remember what you just heard? You know, the Bible just said, there will be no remembrance of the things that have been said before. It's so easy for us to, to miss it. And that's one of the points he brings here. So I would like to back up and slow down and actually read Ecclesiastes uh, beginning verse 2 uh, through, through the chapter. And I want you to be able to see that in these eight things that are mentioned by the, uh, 
by the preacher man that there are uh, some things that are a little alarming, a little dissatisfying. He almost leaves you, I don't want to say he leaves you crying, but he leaves you uh, rather disappointed. And uh, so let me take you to those texts right now. Uh, the word here in verse 2 is vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So if I could help, uh, some of the translators call this emptiness. It is, as the, um, the one commentator calls it, it's smoke. It just seems like it's, it's vapor that appears and then is gone. So this is how the old man is writing. Uh, the the uh, old man, I say that respectfully, because Solomon now has lived a few years. Solomon has just about completed his 40 years as the king. Uh, in his 40 years, it finished up in 931. So that's when the divided kingdom happened. So you can back it up. Uh, he, he took the throne at 971. And uh, if you start to figure it all out, if... At 931 was when he finished, and it was probably about 932 or 933 that he wrote this book. It's called, in, in our language, we would call it Ecclesiastes, which is kind of built on the root word of ecclesia, which is church. But in the Old Testament, it was called Koheleth, uh, and some translate that as the preacher. Uh, and that's why you see that in the text, uh, in the very first word, the words of the preacher. It's the one who's proclaiming. Sinclair Ferguson helped me out here, and he said that really it's not focused on a preacher as we would know it in church, but more like a pundit that you would hear on a commentator uh, opinion show. So Solomon is now writing as a commentator. He is writing as a philosopher who has lived a long time. He's literally got the gray hair and the beard. And you could just see him. Uh, you know, he, he, he's got that pondering look, and he's giving you this perspective, but he gives it to us in not a religious tone. He brings it out in a secular presentation. Now, this is the same Solomon that wrote the Song of Solomon as probably a teenager and probably wrote the book of Proverbs as a, uh, a middle-aged guy. But when he writes this towards the end of his kingdom, he has already tried almost everything, and he's sharing some wise insights as a secular observer, but then he gives, he, he powders it with some Christianity, and I'll be showing it as we wrap up. But he starts off here, and he says, everything is empty, verse 2. Verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That was his first question. He's raising the issue, if you work hard, what do you gain? Then in verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. He's talking about uh, the, the generations. I'll be bringing that text out in just a moment. He says, one comes and another one comes later and another one comes later. Uh, this is a guy who is now watching the third king get to the throne. Each king has had about 40 years. King Saul had 40 years. King David, his dad, had 40 years. And Solomon had 40 years. So he says, one comes and then it goes. Another comes and it goes. And he said, it still seems like everything stays the same. Now, if you look at the next verse, verse 5, the sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. He's talking about the planetary motion. It just seems like it just keeps doing the same thing, almost like it's on a repeat cycle. And then verse 6, the wind blows. This is talking about the weather. The wind blows to the south. The wind blows around to the north. Around and around the, goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. 
He says, you don't even know where the wind is coming. You don't know where it's going. You don't know when it comes. Oh, except we have apps now. We know all of it. In verse 7, he talks about some of the, the physical data, the physics um, of gravity. He says, streams run to the sea. All the streams run downhill, basically, but the sea doesn't get full. To the place where the streams flow, they will flow again. In other words, somehow or other, the water keeps coming down, keeps coming down like a waterfall. Somehow or other, somehow or other the water gets back up there. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In this particular instance, he's, he's saying that, that our ability to communicate, both to take in and to give out, he says we can't really figure it out. You can write books and books and books and books, and you still don't know everything. Then he says in verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done again, and there is nothing new under the sun. Sometimes you just want to say, whoa. Everything kind of seems on a holding pattern. Verse 10, is there a new thing where somebody says, see, here is something new. <laughs> but he says it has already been, it has already in the ages before us, there is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things yet to be among those who come after. He basically says, hey, there's been a lot of things happen and you don't even know about it. And the things that are going on in your lifetime, the generation that comes next, they won't even know your name. They won't even know you exist. And that's why he finally in verse 12 identifies himself. Hey, I'm the pundit. I'm the guy that's telling you the way it is. He says, I've been the king over Israel. I've applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, the wisdom that God gave me, all that is done under this heaven. In other words, I'm looking at what's going on on this earth. And if, I, if you remember the phrase, whenever it's said under heaven, it's talking from a secular perspective. In other words, if you're living on this earth under the sun, this is what people on the earth should figure out. Why are we here? Now, I want to take you to chapter 2. Uh, because in chapter 2, after he said there's much vexation and much uh, wisdom, he says, the more I've tried to figure this out, the more I get frustration or, as he says, vexation, which is like he's just stirred up. Chapter 2, he says, come now, I will test with pleasure. In other words, okay, from the pundit's view, if you've, you've got all these base points down, he says, maybe we can just try to have fun. And after he goes through that, which we looked at a little bit before, I wanted to get down to uh, verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 17. After he's looked at these things, he's only in chapter 2, mind you. He says, so I hated life because what is done under the sun, in other words, this human life that we get to live in, it's grievous to me. I just don't find satisfaction. I can't find purpose. I can't get it. For everything is empty. Everything is vanity. It's like trying to grab and hang on to the wind. Or somebody said it's like spitting into the wind. So he says in verse 18 and 19, I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise person or a fool. And yet 
He will be master of all that I had toiled during my lifetime and used my wisdom under the sun to accomplish. This feels so empty. Verse 20. So I turned about and gave up my heart to despair. Now, that's where most people, when they start reading the book of Koheleth or Ecclesiastes, you don't really find a lot of encouragement. So let me pray, and then I'll tackle this real briefly. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to not be brought down, but I pray that you'll lift us up. Give us hope, as we just sang about. You are our living hope. Help us to see through and the point that Solomon was trying to show through this wisdom poetry. In Jesus' name, amen. The issue about the next generation. Is it really worth all the energy that, uh, that Michelle is putting into to transform this church into an event? Bible school. I mean, do you know how hard it was for you all to mimic the words that were sung for you? Zoomerang, zoomeroo, zoomeroo. It's so hard for even you to get up to be able to do anything. And you're going to say, well, I didn't know the pastor was going to make fun of us. If you're standing here watching you all, it's like, you guys have no excitement about Bible school because I didn't see it. Why should we be excited about reaching this next generation? In the text that we just read, I want to show you that Solomon in his wisdom points out three things and leads us to question these. And when, once we look at these questions, then I want to give you a solution from Solomon and it'll encourage you at the end. So there's three questions that I, that I want to propose or, or push you forward on. The first question is from verse 4 of chapter 1. So if you turn your Bibles over, you're going to see a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What's going on here? He says, he, uh, he says it's business as usual. It's business as usual no matter what. As I've already laid the foundation for you, Solomon is now in his old age. He's already seen one king come, he's seen another one, and then he's replaced that guy, and now he carries on. Does anything matter? Does anything matter? He said, if a generation, why should, why should we invest so much into the next generation if it's just going to come and go, and then it'll be replaced, and that one will be replaced, and that one will be replaced? There's a sense of hopelessness that you get in this verse. And so uh, the question that is raised, if it is business as usual in the long run, then why care about the kids? Do you have an answer? That's what he said in verse 4. Let me jump down to uh, verses 11 and 12. In verses 11 and 12, you find another reference to the next generation. He says, they don't remember anything. Let me read it for you in verse 11 and 12. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be remembrance of latter things yet to be done by those who come after. When I look here, he says, the next generation doesn't remember the effort and the sacrifices of those who came before. The great exploits of this generation will also be forgotten by people who come next. As I've indicated, I, I was, uh, I'm still impacted. I carry around that... Um, that thing from the park ranger from the George Washington's crossing of the Delaware. The, that ranger just impressed me. He was a simple guy. And he says, you know, the children that come on the field trips, you know, they only come if they have a close circumference from the area. You know, obviously, the school that I went to in Maryland never makes the trip up to Trenton. Okay, so only a few students ever get to go there as a field trip. 
And he says the students that come, they don't know anything about it. And so the park ranger is trying to make it at least interestingly enough so that the kids will talk more about that than they will about what's in their lunchbox, if they even bring a lunchbox. They probably all have swipe cards or they have, have school lunches provided by the school. No, my, my point being is, is that the, the forgetting of what's been done is, is universally understood. Now, some of us that are older, we're realizing that this beautiful thing that God gives us, the brain, it has taken in a lot of information and it doesn't spit it out quite as well. Now, I do have to give you some, uh, some sympathies on that. Because even though I've studied the Bible, it is amazing still that I can finish a lot of the verses. But that's why we're supposed to hide God's word in our heart, that we might know the truth, that it, we would not veer to the right or from the left. But, but there's a lot of things that we never did put in there. There's a lot of information from the previous generations that you don't know anything about. And therefore, if you've never heard anything about them, you wouldn't even forget it. Because you wouldn't even know that, you would ha that there was something there to remember. But Solomon is talking about this next generation. And he says, you know, we're the next generation in a sense. We're the first one. We barely remember much about what went on before. When I think about my dad, when my dad was a, a youngster, a teenager, you know where he was? He was in the Netherlands. Did he enjoy July 4th like we do with all my kids growing up? No. Uh, his childhood was pretty messed up. World War I had already done some things, and World War II was in. And uh, he was born right in that transition period, and he was 15 and 16-year-old when the Battle of the Bulge was going to take place. But he, for the most part, lived under Nazi occupation. And he never liked to talk about his upbringing. You know about my kids? Barely know anything about my dad's experience. Because it was hard for me to know much of my dad's experience. Because my dad didn't even want to tell us about it. As I've told you before, I thought it was really cool when I took him to D.C. and to the Holocaust Museum. You know, where you go in there and you have all the different levels. You start at the top and you come on down. And uh, my dad, I told you before, when he saw that train car with the chains, oh, his face. He'd seen it before. But I don't think I ever told you that when we walked around that one corner of the back of the building there was this room that's got glass in front of it, and there are just thousands and thousands of shoes. And it was as if my dad had worn those shoes, even though those were shoes that had been taken off of the Jews that were in the concentration camps. But my dad could see it. He could relate to it. Now, I tell you these things because it's so easy for us to forget. Why do we forget? Because we have our own problems. Jesus said, sufficient are the problems you have for today. Every one of us is dealing with present tense issues. You know, are we healthy? Are we fed? Do we have enough money to be able to buy enough gas to get our car here? Praise the Lord, it's dropped a dollar. But it's crazy that it's over $4 a gallon still. We get caught up with the present tense, and we even forget what happened yesterday. And Solomon is telling us about the next generation. How many of them will remember anything? The third illustration that comes up, oh, the question that he comes out of that one, is if nobody even notices what we have to say or do, then why should we put forth the effort to invest in those of the next generation? Sounds kind of morbid. 
But let me take you to the third one that's in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. If you turn over to that verse, chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, I've already read it for you, but you can see it. He, Solomon now, he's, he's tried pleasure. He's, he's told us all these things, and he says, I finally just got to this point where he says, I just hated all my toil. He says, I've been busting my butt. I've been doing everything that I can to make ends meet. Some of you relate to this. Although in today's culture, there's a lot of people that still live in the basement until they're past 26. Because they can. He, he ends up saying, I get frustrated with all this effort that I put in under the sun. During these three score and ten years that my dad talked about in the Psalms. Because that's what... Uh, that's what the lifespan was to be expected. That's a good life to have 70 years. He says, under the sun, he says, I worked hard. But he says, I have to leave it to somebody in the next generation. And this is the frustration that Solomon is saying. If you're a pundit, you're saying, you work so hard. You put your energy into it. You even miss a whole bunch of meals. You don't even get to see your kids grow up because you put so much into what you're doing. And then you get a little sick, or you get a little old, or you get a lot of arthritis, or you get something. And then all your toil, it either fades or somebody else takes it over. And then he says, not only is it frustrating that some, I want to say, snotty-nosed kid's going to take it over, but then he says, and who knows, verse 19, whether that person who takes it over will be wise or be a fool. He says, I have no guarantee that everything I've poured my life into is going to be picked up by somebody who actually knows what they're doing. Or are they going to waste it away? He says, even, it doesn't matter. He says, yet that guy, that gal, that person is going to be the master of all that I had worked for and used all my wisdom while I was under the sun. He says, it's so empty. I worked very hard to build a business and to provide all my lifetime, but then I die and it's left to someone in the next generation who did not have to build it or it may not even take care of it and may choose to not even carry it on. So his question is, if you can't keep what you have accumulated and you know that someone else from the next generation will take it all over and decide its fate, why work so hard? Why put forth the effort? Okay, aren't you feeling wonderful now? We've looked at the Word of God, and you get to see the wisdom that comes in this poetic language. Now, I wanted to tell you that this is where a lot of secular people are. Haven't you been told the phrase when you were a child, children are meant to be seen and... Oh, you've already been told. Kids are supposed to be... You know, they're supposed to take their place and sit where they're supposed to be. And we all know that what's going on in the generational change right now is that kids aren't doing that. When I listened to one of, one of the other pundits on the, on the modern podcast, uh, somebody was just telling how a judge ruled against a parent now because a parent didn't want to accept that, that her daughter is actually a girl. Because the daughter has now declared that she's a boy, and the dad who's separated from the mom has already embraced it. And so they went to court, and the judge ruled that the mom was like a terrorist against her daughter if she declared that she was still a girl. That happens in the United States this past month. And you're just sitting there like, hmm, is it worth it? 
When Solomon says in his first issue, one generation comes and another comes, then another comes, in a sense, there's some hope in that to say, well, they can't just screw it up that bad. Because you're going to say, well, you know, what happened back in the 60s? Well, then there's another generation. But you realize that what is actually getting is that people are moving more and, way, more, and more away from the foundations. And, the, and, the, uh, and that goes to the second point that he brings up there is that they don't remember anymore. Well, there is a concerted effort going on today for people not to forget something by never being told it. If you're in some denominations, they don't even want you to read your own Bibles. How much more if you're going to a secular school or a secular university, they're not going to be the ones teaching you what's in the Word. And as a result, when you get a little bit older, how many of you can quote the scriptures? How many can even tell if it says a happy, life is, a happy wife is a happy life? Is that in the Bible? I'm glad somebody said no. Maybe wise, but it's not in the Bible. Uh, the thing is, is we don't even know what the word of God is. They've taken the Ten Commandments out of the school system, and they actually said that we shouldn't be praying, even though we know you can't take prayer away. Because where else do you cry out to? They may not cry out verbally. I told you I was just recently in Alaska, and, uh, and, and that's an island that's so far away from here, it took us a whole day to fly and fly and fly and fly. It was really cool getting out there. But when we were out there, I thought, man, this is cool. We're so far away from all of the big cities. And the young lady there told me, she says, in the public school there, she was asked whether she's fluid or bisexual. But of course, nobody asks if you're a virgin. Nobody asks if you're going to keep yourself pure till marriage. Nobody even expects you to get married anymore. Why? Because the bigger questions are, are you a boy or a girl? Or since nobody knows what a woman is, what are you anyway? This is so crazy to even stand before you in 2022 and say that these are legitimate questions that are actually being uttered out of people's voices. You see, people have forgotten what has been said before or they never knew it. The third question that came up to him was, uh, I'm going to work so hard and then I'm going to leave it to somebody else. You guys may feel that too, but some of you may not have much to leave to anybody else, so you may not care as much. But there is this sense of, what was the value of your life? You know, we've heard the book of Esther, that famous verse, you're here for such a time as this. So what are you here for? And what are you going to leave to the next generation? I want to wrap it up by telling you some solutions to the dilemmas that are there. And if you follow along quickly with me, we're going to turn to chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. In chapter 2, 24 and 25, Solomon is not full of total despair. If you listen to the nuggets that he gives there as the pundit, in chapter 2, 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. This also, I saw, is from, finish the verse. God has given you something to do. You can go to Ephesians chapter 1 or chapter 2, verse 10. It's one of the Bible memory verses. For, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, which God has before ordained that we should be doing them. You see, there's something for you to be doing. And that's why whether you eat or drink or whether you help at Bible school, whatever you do, if you work in Lausanne, if you work in, 
in the public school system or if you work in the church, do it to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 6.31. If I took you down to chapter 3, uh, in chapter 3, verses 1, it says, for everything there is a season. Everybody knows chapter 3 because of that song. You know, turn, turn, there is a season, turn, turn. You know, he ends up going through a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up. You can go through all those things. But in verse 11 is where I want to take you. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Who is the he? And by the way, I am telling you that the pronoun matters. God. You see, when you realize that Solomon says, hey, you may go through a troubled work, but God works it all together for good. He makes it beautiful in his time. Do you know in the New Testament, Romans 8 ends up bringing that out? For, uh, for he says he works all things together for the good to them who love God, who are the called according to his purposes. And some of you are looking at me right now and say, let me show you the list of all the bad things that have happened in my life. He makes all things beautiful in his time now let me take you to the next one if you turn to chapter 3 verse 17 and 18 same same chapter go down a little bit later he said in my heart god will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work and i said in my heart with regard to the children of men in other words to the other people that are on the earth with me he says that god is testing them that they may see that they themselves aren't god now, it's really interesting that Solomon is saying, hey, yeah, these three truths are there, you know, that you work and the generations come, and you can see the other thing, too, that, that nobody really remembers what you seem to say, and then you go to the last part and say, yeah, somebody else is going to take over everything I've ever done. But he says, God's going to be the judge, and right now he's putting you through a test. He's sharpening you. Now, the book of James starts out that way. He said, count it all joy when you go through your trials. And if you look at verse 12, he says, blessed are you because these things strengthen your faith. You wouldn't even turn to God if everything was already heavenly. Number four is in chapter 5, verse 1. If you turn your Bibles over, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. I don't think any of you even noticed that Solomon was big about church. Have any of you ever heard Solomon's temple? It was one of the wonders of the world. Why do you think people would make a trick, a trip to Jerusalem? Because God had filled that temple. <laughs> That's where David danced before the Lord with all of his might when the, when the Ark of the Covenant was going to come because God was going to dwell among his people. And Solomon says in chapter 5, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. See how you are to approach God in this life? He knows so much more. And that's why he's echoing what his dad told him in Psalm 84.10, that he says something to the effect, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to church. Let's go to God's house. If I speed up a little bit and take you to chapter 5, verse 18, 518, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the work you have uh, for the few days that, you, that God has given you, for this is your lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is God's gift to you. Hey, you may work hard, and some of you are going to prosper more than others. And you can say it's not fair, 
But God never promised you fair. What do you think grace is? Grace is giving you what you don't deserve because it's not fair for God to give us forgiveness. But Solomon is telling us, hey, God has put you here. He's gifted you. He's called you. So enjoy it. Which fits with our Westminster Confession. What is our chief end? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, I'm going to run out of time, so I want to speed up a little bit and take you, if you will, to chapter 12. There's, there's about six other times when, when, when Solomon is waxing eloquent. But in chapter 12, and this is where it ties our sermon together, he says to the people, um, uh, the previous verse at the end of chapter 11, remove vex vexation from your hearts and put away your pain from your body for youth and the dawn of your life, their vanity. He says, hey, it's just the reality. When you're young, you have lots of energy. When you're old, you're not going to have as much. It's going to hurt a little bit more to, to do some of the things that didn't hurt so much when you were younger. He says all that in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 10. But chapter 12 is the counsel that I want you to take. He says, remember you're also your creator in the days of your youth. Who's he talking to? I was going to go around and ask you, how many of you would let, declare yourself to be old? Oh, I see about a few of you. <laughs> Sometimes they say old is how you feel. So maybe a lot more of us would go up if that's the definition. But are you still young? Some would say, well, I'm young at heart. The point that he's making here is about to the next generation. It's like Solomon is not taking his own counsel. He's not saying, oh, I'm going to forget those young people. No, he actually is finishing up his, his letter because he's writing to people that are younger than him. He's already lived his whole life. He's the old guy, and he's looking down to the next generations, and he says, you, remember your creator when you still have your mind, when you're a little guy, in the days of your youth. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but Zoomerang, Zoomerang is all about focusing our attention on our creator, the creator of life. So Bible school is an exact application of Ecclesiastes 12.1. It is an admonition for God's people to help the next generation to know who their creator is and to remember him while they're young. Because he says, you know, before long, evil and the evil days will creep up on you and the years will draw near on which you will say, this life is not easy. I'd rather go on to heaven. And he says, I don't have any more pleasure in them. This is chapter 12, verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return to the rain, in the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. In other words, he goes on and he shows you how getting old and all these difficulties are there. But do you remember the counsel he gives? Remember the Creator finish with this thought you can see that solomon is not saying don't do bible school it's a waste no solomon is saying yes it may seem that we may not change the world with with zoomerang but he is telling us to be faithful to challenge the children to know their creator because there's a few other verses that solomon talked about when he was younger proverbs 22 verse 6 proverbs 22 6 you hear it from me all the time. Train that next generation. Invest in them. 
And by the way, who is he talking to? Parents. The people that he entrusts these little children to. He didn't give them to the government. They're not the state's. They're yours. Train up these people from the next generation in the right way. Don't let them be deceived. Don't let them be manipulated. They're hearing voices here, there, and everywhere. It is our responsibility as people who understand that, that this is why God put us here, to raise up the next generation in the right way so that when they get to be like us, they are like us. Or would you rather them not be like us? Are you not something that you would like your children to be? Train them in the right way so that when they're old, they'll, they'll know that there was a right way. I have a grandchild that's turning a year in just a few weeks, and we're going to celebrate Charlie's birthday. What do you think Charlie's going to remember about her birthday? I mean... She'll be embarrassed with some of the pictures I hope we take. You know, as she's learning how to use a spoon and she'll go after the icing or whatever. I don't know what they're going to put all together on this, but there is something about what I want to see Charlie learn is I want her to know Jesus. He's the author and finisher of the faith who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he did this to redeem us from the curse of the law. Paul says about Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, when God was going to make it beautiful in his time, everything was in place, and he sends Jesus, the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15, who would be born of a woman. Yes, he was born of a woman, and he wasn't confused. It was definitely a woman born under the law. He lived this life that we, we also live, the futility and frustrations of it, yet without sin. And then he who knew no sin became sin for us. Or as Isaiah put it, our iniquity was laid upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. At the beach, we have a service with a huge cross up there, very similar to this one, that one. And I always talk about the fact that we don't have a Jesus on the cross anymore. It's been paid in full. The death has already happened. The price has been paid. He's purchased the place in heaven for us, and he offers that as a gift. In Zoomerang, I don't care if the kids ever learn how to catch a boomerang coming back at them, but I pray that there will be some of you who will be like the Mrs. Tolson in my life. My dad was a Christian. He was a preacher. We went to church every Sunday. We had to. You know, that was what we had to do. I mean, I don't think there was a choice. So there we went to church all the time. But I was eight years old, and I was in Bible school, and Mrs. Tolson, who had a, as I told you before, I never liked her voice. But she had a ukulele, and she had a captive audience, and she was asking us about our relationship with Jesus. And I'm still talking about my Bible school teacher, because it was beautiful. I finish with this song. You may have heard it before. We're pilgrims on the journey of that narrow road. And those who've gone before us line the way. 
cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race not only for the prize, but as those who've gone before us, let us leave to those behind us the heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. And may the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us Find us faithful. Let me pray. As the musicians come. Thank you. Lord Jesus, there was a generation that had forgotten. And we learned about that in the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 10. Jericho and all those things were not in their memory banks. Joshua had fought the battle of Jericho. Joshua had taken over the whole promised land. Joshua had some stirring speeches. He was up there and said, Choose you this day whom you shall serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But when Joshua, the son of Nun, died, the next generation didn't even know anything about Joshua. And they didn't know what great things our God had done to give the people the land. They simply forgot, and they forgot God. Lord, I pray that as we have opportunity today, that we will not be like the secular pundits and just say it's not worth it all, or we delegate all of our responsibility to train the next generation to the state or to these professional educators. Lord, I pray that we will teach them about Jesus and not simply the words of eternal life, but may we model a relationship with the risen Lord, one that demonstrate a peace even when we go through turmoil, one that has a calmness because we know you still make all things beautiful in your time and one that is not ashamed to say, Jesus is my Lord, even when others around us think we're fools and stupid. We know that the world has always said that the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. But unto us, we know it's how you save us. It's the power of God to salvation. Bless this endeavor to reach the next generation. In Jesus' name, amen.